Welcome to the Roger Snipes Show. My name is Roger Snipes. I'm a lifetime natural fitness enthusiast with a key interest in physical and mental development, where science and nature create synergy, bringing you lifestyle optimization. Good evening, ladies and gents. <laughs> So today's the 18th episode of the Roger Snipes show. So firstly, thank you very much for those supporting the show. I've got some great feedback through DMs, tweets, emails, Facebook messages. It's been incredible. Uh, so yeah, just feel free to leave a review if you like, as that continues to show support. I'll be honest, it's it's a mission to keep on top of podcasts and I have great admiration for people who do it, especially those who leave like real detailed show notes. Like I've listened to some podcasts and then I've looked into the notes and I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I'll get there one day. I will. One day. <laughs> one day. How people manage a business and sort out all of their social media and do podcasts as well, they probably hire people to do some of that because it takes a long time. I mean, I've even got an assistant to help me with uh, my Instagram and um, I still need to manage other parts of it as well. So yeah, hard times. <laughs> My next guest on today's show is an author, a public speaker, a high performance coach, and today would be known as a biohacker. And he goes by the name of Seamland. I remember the first time I heard that name, I was like, Seamland? Like, is, is Seamland like his first name or is that split in two? I was trying to figure out like how it was said if I was to ever meet him. I didn't want to every time call him Seamland. You know, like when you speak of uh, like a celebrity, when you talk of like Michael Jackson, for instance, it, it would seem weird just to say Michael because you're not really, you're not really friends. <laughs> Anyhow, so I first learned about Seam through the Health Optimization Summit in September 2019. And I didn't get the opportunity to meet him, but heard about him and how he was diversely intelligent in the science of fitness and was young at 25 years old. I was like, wow, okay, okay. So, I checked out his podcasts and I listened to a few interviews where he discussed in extreme depth about the human biology. And through him being a practitioner of holistic health, created the idea of body mind empowerment. He has a YouTube which has over 100,000 followers and also has his own podcasts, which is called uh, Body Mind Empowerment. Everything about optimizing the body he is interested in. So much so, he has a book which is called Metabolic Autophagy, which I'm currently going through, and it is incredible. I noticed on his social media he took an epigenetics test called 
DNH, which um, I'll put in the show notes with my discount code, in which his biological age was 16 years old. 16 years old. So if anybody knows about anti-aging, then it's definitely him. So today we're going to be discussing about his book and metabolic autophagy and just ways in which we can defy aging. Best ways in which we can optimize our health and live a good long life. Okay, let's bring on Seamland. Okay, so how you doing, bro? I'm doing quite phenomenal. At the moment, I'm uh, sitting in my house and kind of preparing for the coming winter or uh, the coming uh, pandemic. But yeah, <laughs> other than that, it's uh, going really good. Yeah, so have you bought lots of uh, toilet tissue? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I didn't buy like a lot of uh, toilet paper, but uh, I did buy like, you know, primarily frozen frozen meat, frozen vegetables. And yeah, just uh, this, this, the things that I would, I would uh, normally eat anyways. So kind of yeah. doesn't, it's not like a big issue or it doesn't take any more extra effort to just uh, have like a bit of more extra food on the fridge. <laughs> that's true, you know. Yeah, that's true. I guess, you know, this, this whole outbreak that is, that is taking place, I've been taking it quite casually. I'm just buying food as normal, going to the supermarket, strolling about, and it's just quite empty. Um, I've seen people have started to buy lots of rice, um, rice, pasta, and um, what else? Toilet tissue. And I'm yeah. like, what's with the toilet tissue? <laughs> Are people going to start eating that? Yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah, it's 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 like the comfort, uh, comfort, uh, comfortable world. Like the toilet paper is like luxury in nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be honest, if if things start to get worse, I think. Toilet tissue is probably the least of my worries. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway, so um, the reason why I wanted to speak with you today, first of all, thank you for your time. Um, no I'm a great fan of your work. I just, I recently came across it through social media. Obviously your Instagram pages, uh, page varies greatly in its, uh, in its content. Um, in regards to upgrading the body and um, optimizing yourself provides a lot of information on external and internal influences on biology and um, I guess the stars were aligned which brings us today <laughs> because um, I discovered your podcast or a podcast where you was talking about longevity and um, more so to do with autophagy and um that's that's the the real key area that i want to focus on because i know that's your area of expertise and recently you came out with a book um called metabolic autophagy and uh in there you also have some some parts which you call the 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 hallmarks of aging mm -hmm. and um what i'd like to do is to yeah, probably cover those. If we cover, cover a few extras, then that'll be great. Like if you feel that like there's anything else you feel worth covering, but I'd like to definitely like to talk about the, the hallmarks of aging. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, what, what was the first one in your book? Well, yeah, let's start. What, what is it that you uh, would say is the most important things of aging? What are the hallmarks? Where do we start with that? 
Yeah, like uh, there's been this sort of a quest for humanity to figure out and scientists to know like what is causing aging and uh, hope to kind of fix it. And they have come, you know, figured out a few of the key characteristics and a few things that start to go wrong, uh, such as like, uh, you know, there's the theory of the mitochondrial theory of aging that's been predominant for like the last few decades, which essentially means that as you get older, uh, the mitochondria start to produce, or as, as your mitochondria become more dysfunctional, which are the energy producing organelles of your body, then that accelerates aging. And that's, you know, ultimately the reason why you age, you kind of start to suffer from energy production. But there are also some other factors like, you know, telomere shortening, mm. uh, general uh, epigenetic alterations, and uh, deregulation of nutrient signaling and uh, cellular senescence, which is like the accumulation of these uh, zombie cells that have spread inflammation and disease. And yeah, like uh, generally just uh, wear and tear of the body. But, uh, you know, recently what I've, uh, what, what I've come across over the last few months has been the information theory of aging, which is... Uh, uh, hypothesized by uh, Dr. David Sinclair from Harvard mm-hmm. and uh, he has this idea that okay we have all these different factors that contribute to aging what is the what is the kind of thing that brings those things together and uh, what's mm. the kind of one singular thing that is causing all these things to go uh, wrong and uh, he, he in his view it's this loss of epigenetic information that happens over the course of time that is uh, starting to break out all these other parts and uh, this epigenetic information is almost like the way your body is uh, behaving in any given moment based upon the kind of signals it gets from the environment and uh, what kind of uh, stimulus does it receive so uh, you have the genetics which is your dna your heritage and those things and then you have the epigenetics which is, you know, the lifestyle as well as the environment. And, I've uh, heard so quickly that w- when describing epigenetics, um, there was uh, an expression used where the, you, you do have the genetics, which is like the hardware and the lifestyle, which is the software. Yeah. And it really depends on the software which you uh, install in your hardware kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like exactly, they the scientists think that you know your longevity and lifespan they're determined by like up to eighty percent by your epigenetics and only twenty percent by your genetics. So you can play around a lot <laughs> with those things. And uh, yeah, like uh, what you do every day does have like a quite a long term effect uh, on your longevity. Mm. What do you think about this outbreak then? How do you feel it's affecting people's lives right now, even if they are not actually affected by the coronavirus? What are your thoughts about that? Uh, well, like in a way, it kind of makes people more uh, more aware of their immune system and their health. So uh, if they if they do know that uh, people with uh, these additional comorbidities, such as like diabetes or uh, cardiovascular disease or obesity, uh, or generally just uh, not being healthy, then all those things can make the disease worse and increase your suspect- suspectability of getting it, as well as uh, suffering more severe symptoms. So uh, maybe some people would like more, pay more attention to taking care of themselves, uh, which itself is just uh, improving their uh, like epigenetic signaling. Uh, but at the same time, it's also like a 
it's also more difficult to uh, stay healthy if you're stuck in quarantine or <laughs> if you don't, don't have access to fresh food and uh, fresh vegetables and those things. So yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a chicken and egg. Or it's like a double-edged sword. In, in some aspects, people are more careful with their health and they may you know, take some proactive measures against it, like you know, taking some more exercise, taking a sauna, uh, or doing some form of like just uh, walking in nature and those things. Uh, but yeah, like most people may not have the access to it and they end up eating like pasta and uh, rice in their, in their apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, probably going to end up um, affecting their, their body, making it worse, if anything, isn't it? And, yeah. it? and when I think about hospitals and the way they are designed, it's not, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're underneath artificial light. You don't have any natural yeah. sunlight. There's no grounding there's a lot of probably a lot of emf in there as well <laughs> yeah yeah that's true and uh, vitamin d that you get from sunlight is uh, very important for the immune system and uh, yeah just the artificial light may may be more damaging than uh, beneficial mm. yeah and one thing i wanted to ask you mentioned um all this uh, genomic stuff uh, what could you talk a bit more about the uh, genomic instability, which um, where you get um, genetic damage? How has that generally occurred? Uh, well, it's it's usually occurs uh, in some aspects as a byproduct of just living. There's gonna be some uh, mutations and some uh, damage uh, as a byproduct of just you know breathing and digesting food and uh, just living. But uh, a lot of it is magnified in the current environment of like air pollution, uh, you know, pesticides, plastics, heavy metals, and these other, you know, chemicals around house, house chemicals, house cleaning chemicals, all those things can, you know, affect this, uh, this uh, stability. And yeah, like it, it's not, it's not that this, it's not that this, every single thing is inherently harmful. It's just that once you start adding all those things up, then uh, this sort of a cumulative effect occurs that uh, it's not like, like one single thing is going to be, you know, making you die sooner. It's just that all those things uh, pile on top of each other and then you, you don't have like the, you don't have like the ability to deal with it in this, in such uh, large quantities. Mm -hmm. the, body can, the body has, or the human body has always evolved under different environmental stressors. But uh, in the modern world, we have like these unnatural stressors and uh, they're kind of all around us so we're not really familiar with them and we haven't built up that like uh, we haven't built up specific uh, defense mechanisms against those things and yeah it's just just kind of a small mismatch between our natural biology and uh, the uh, urban environment mm -hmm. how long do you think it will take before our body starts to become used to it or adapt to it do you think we will be able to at some point I think so, uh, or I, I just hope so. So uh, maybe, you know, for example, another good example of uh, already existing adaptations is uh, like EMF and uh, radio, radio waves and radio frequencies. So if you were to, you know, people in New York City, they're constantly surrounded by these, you know, massive amounts of EMF and uh, most of them don't really notice it and most of them don't experience any negative symptoms. Uh, but if you were to like a drop some hunter-gatherer from the Amazon into New York City, then they would get like a massive headache. They would actually, you know, break out and they would experience all these negative symptoms because they've never really experienced anything like that. So their body is not adapted to that kind of a stimulus versus mm. the, 
the people in New York City, they've already gotten used to it and they don't notice it. What's your thoughts on uh, 5G? Do you feel that's going to be pretty bad or not really that much of a difference from what we currently have? Well, I think that uh, it would, um, you know, some, you can't avoid it uh, completely. So uh, you, you, you probably would have to adapt to it. And uh, some, it can work as a hormetic stressor as long as you get enough time for a recovery. So uh, in a way, you would have to kind of create these environments into your uh, household or somewhere around the around that area where you can you know be in this uh, low emf state and where you can ground and those sort of things as to kind of allow your body to recover from the stimulus so uh, the hormesis aspect is like a biphasic uh, dose specific response to a stressor so a small amount of stress is actually beneficial because it can upregulate your body's defense mechanisms but uh, if it gets too hard or it's you know too stimulating, then you're going to experience these diminishing returns, and it's actually going to become harmful because you're kind of taking it too far. So the sweet spot is somewhere in the, like uh, not too much and not too little, <laughs> and it right. uh, depends on the particular type of a poison or a toxin that you were talking about. But you would yeah like if you're as long as you get like some time of uh, grounding, as long as you have like a house where you don't have like the wi-fi on all the time and as long as you're like especially doing sleep where you would uh, go into like a state of uh, low emf where you wouldn't be surrounded by a bunch of emf then um, i think most people would be fine they would just kind of get used to it after a while right so um in, in terms of mitigating factors like switch off wi-fi during the night what EMF protecting devices can the person have in their house that might help during that time? Or even now, um, some sort of grounding material you mentioned? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm using like a grounding mat. Uh, I, I sleep on it. So it kind of, the wire goes outside into the ground and uh, have the, I have the mattress in my bed upstairs. So uh, I'll sleep on it. So I'll be staying grounded. Uh, but you can also use that same idea while working on your computer or anything else. So you just have to kind of, you, you can use these like grounding patches where you attach it onto your skin or onto your body or whatever it is. And the same, the wire goes outside into the ground with a metal rod and kind of keeps you grounded. Uh, right. Yeah. Are there any uh, like video tutorials on how to do that? That sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, like it's not it's not like really complex. It's not difficult. Yeah, just plug it, plug the metal rod outside and like a, some sort of a conductor, and uh, the wire itself can come through your uh, window, and uh, then you have like this. You can you can attach it onto your mattress or uh, like a patch, and uh, yeah, it's it's pretty easy. Uh, but additional things, what I use also is like the the blue shield, which is supposed to be, yeah, like EMF protector uh and they do have like some studies on like animals showing that it's uh it works in some ways like lowering stress and uh maintaining better cellular functioning but uh yeah like it's it's something that uh, i i do as a precautionary measure so i don't have like specific data to uh support that it actually works but i do notice myself that uh like i do feel less stimulated if i have 
this uh, blue shield turned on and it's what, not sorry like, what is blue shield uh, I don't it's, it's like so it's, it's sort of like a cube uh, i'm not sure I'll, exactly the technology how it works either but it's a, sort of a, this uh, emf um, blocking cube and uh, in this creates this sort of a radius uh, that is mm. essentially supposed to block some of the emf so it works by like free frequency being emitted in the air to yeah something something along that so wouldn't that affect the use of like your wireless router or anything like that? Um, well, I haven't, I haven't noticed uh, anything like that. <laughs> right, right. Have you heard of something called a Sumavadik? Yeah, I have. Uh, like, yeah. like a lamp or... Yeah, it, look, it looks like <laughs> a lamp. That's right, yeah. Have you, have you looked into that, into the technology of that at all? Uh, no, I haven't. I've only heard of it. Right. What I do know is that it's got these uh, crystals and semi-precious crystals in there, um, which somehow <laughs> it uh, helps to harmonize the body. It doesn't exactly block EMF, but it's supposed to work at a different uh, frequency to harmonize and protect the body from mm -hmm. free radicals. Apparently, there's like clinical studies which have shown that free radicals um, was reduced when the Samavadik was switched on in the house. Um, I don't know too much about the science on that, but there's lots of studies where people have, um, you know, undergone tests and all that sort of thing. So I just wanted to know if you knew a bit more about that and whether that was part of your, um, I don't know, lo longevity protocol. <laughs> Well, it might it might work like if it's uh, harmonizing the environment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, well, and even like the placebo effect can be powerful. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'll, you know what? I'll at least work with that. It's supposed <laughs> to structure water as well. Okay. Um, I've got a book by someone. Oh, what is his name? Something Pollock. Um, yeah. Gerard Pollock. Gerard Pollock, yeah. I still haven't read his book. I've <laughs> got so many books. And it's like, I'll, I'll see a little bit of one and then a little bit of another. I don't know. Maybe it's a shiny penny syndrome with different books or something. <laughs> but what tends to happen is I'll, um, I'll, have, I'll be subscribed to podcasts uh, like yours, for instance. And I'll get a notification. And it's so easy listening. You know, I'll just yeah. like, you know, I don't have to sit there and really focus. It just plays and I won't really think about it. But yeah, his, his book is on obviously structuring water. And um, I found that really interesting how, you know, there's also a theory, I don't know the truth in it, but you can actually get structured water from the vegetables that we eat uh, or they come in a, a structured form um h3o2 or something like that um but yeah the somavidic supposed to as well structure water so i feel all right i haven't been sick i haven't caught any virus so <laughs> i'll i don't know i'll live off the placebo if it doesn't work <laughs> yeah. um so i've heard different theories on um telomeres um like if you was to have a, a telomeres test, um, you, there's there's like less um, uh, there's there's less strong evidence to determine how well your body is doing to check your telomeres than if you was to do uh, a Horvath uh, epigenetics um, mm. 
um, I don't know, uh, test. Yeah. Um, but what, what is, how does telomeres work and why should anyone be concerned about it? Yeah, well, uh, telomeres themselves are these uh, like uh, nucleotide sequences at the ends of uh, chromosomes. So they're like the kind of protective caps that uh, protect the chromosomes against uh, deterioration. And uh, in a way, shorter telomeres would uh, lead to more epigenetic loss of information and uh, preserving that these telomere cap will have like a protective effect. And there is some association between longer telomeres and uh, longer lifespan, and uh, as well as the shorter telomeres and the shorter lifespan. But mm-hmm. uh, it's the reason why it may not be that accurate is that there are like some additional factors that can that can affect this process. And you can also like regrow some of the telomeres and they can grow back in a way. So I think uh, the reason why it may not be, it, it does indicate some aspects of aging. Uh, you probably don't want to have like super short <laughs> telomeres, but uh, yeah, like the, the, the confounding variables tend to like uh, make it more uh, context dependent. Uh, but you mentioned the Horvath's clock, which is uh, the Horvath's clock is uh, measures your DNA methylation, and uh, that they they think that is more of uh, at the moment currently is the most accurate way of uh, assessing your biological age. Uh, but uh, uh, but you know there's also like different clocks that uh, they're uh, figuring out constantly. So right. uh, like uh, I, I did take my DNA meth- the Horvath clock uh, test. A few weeks ago, with uh, the brand uh, My DNA, but I haven't heard the like the results yet. So uh, we'll oh, see. Oh right! Did you say last week? I know it was like uh, last month or something. So last month. Yeah, I think um, that when I had it done, it took probably some slightly longer than six weeks. Yeah. And what they did say was that they had quite a lot of people that had it done, and it's it's a long process. Um, and they had a backlog of people they had to deal with. So I'm sure they'll let you know. I'll be interested to know. I would <laughs> definitely be interested to know. You know, I, I do a lot of things to try to, you know, to try and live right. You know, yeah, you know I've even started the breathing exercises, uh, visualization. Uh, you know, I'll go through. I have like uh, some, uh, what do you call it? Um, hydrogen water, which I drink every day. I, take some activated charcoal every once in a while and loads of different things here and there obviously I train Mm -hmm. um but it's like I was expecting my results to turn out like maybe five years younger but it was like two I was like what's this (laughs) although it was good I was still disappointed (laughs) (laughs) um so at the time when I took it I was 40 and it said um, my result was 38. Mm. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's still very good, I think. <laughs> yeah, which is cool. So, um, all right. So back to telomeres or telomeres. How, how can a person lengthen their telomeres if it's short? What sort of things? Yeah. Well, like, um, you know, what shortens telomeres is generally stress and uh, chronic stress and inflammation. So every, anything that is, you know, we mentioned these, uh, these uh, environmental toxins and those things, they inevitably will have like an effect on shortening the telomeres. But uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, then 
the only few known ways of uh, lengthening the telomeres is uh, things like meditation and yeah, ju just like stress management, as well as like in terms of food, then the only food that has been shown to lengthen telomeres is like red meat, if I'm not mistaken. So, <laughs> Oh, really? Like, uh, yeah. Red meat lengthens telomeres? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but everyone's gone vegan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's slightly like a misleading uh, concept that uh, protein and meat is uh, bad for you because, because, you know, what, what, what uh, protein and meat do is just stimulate the body's anabolic growth pathways and uh, you know growing muscle as well as growing telomeres um, then they are like anabolic process you need some some like um, like energy as well as the specific nutrients for that growth and if you're if you're constantly depriving yourself from these nutrients then your bodies will just eventually just uh, start to deteriorate and uh, that in turn can accelerate aging because uh, you're losing your muscle mass and you're losing your bone density, you're losing your, I don't know, hair or whatever it is. You're losing your, yeah, like the general vigor that is uh, associated with longevity. And uh, that's why I think that the idea that protein and meat are bad for you is very kind of misleading. And it's definitely not like what most people would, it's not, it's not applicable to most people's uh, goals. Right, right, right. Do you think that certain people will thrive off not eating meat? Or do you, do you think that, yeah, it's only a certain amount of people? Or do you think it's possible to live a, a thriving life without meat? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do think that it's, it's possible. Like, especially in the modern world, we have like supplements. So we can supplement basically anything that we don't get from uh, animal products. Like you can supplement B12. You can supplement uh, creatine and uh, all the other nutrients that you get. Um, but, you know, I think uh, like uh, it's going to be, there's going to be like a bell-shaped curve for, uh, for these diets. So on one end of the extreme, you have like the carnivore diet <laughs> and the other end of the extreme, you have the vegan diet. And, you know, approximately 10% of the population will, gravit will need to do one or the other. And like the rest of the 80% of the people will do somewhere in the middle, you know, like a mixture of both. So, mm. uh, yeah, like uh, these extremes, they can work for some people, uh, but they're definitely not uh, necessary for uh, everyone. And uh, most people would actually do better by just eating like an omnivorous diet and like a balance, more balanced way of eating. Mm -hmm. What kind of diet do you follow? Uh, I myself... If I were to kind of describe it, then mm. it would be like a cyclical keto diet with uh, intermittent fasting. So basically, I do eat most of the time. I eat uh, low carb and high protein, and but on some other days, I also incorporate some uh, days where I eat more carbs because uh, I want to maintain this sort of uh, metabolic flexibility and uh, just improve. Just use the carbs for like uh, physical performance as well as. Uh, insulin sensitivity and so on so i don't want to ever lose my body's ability to handle certain nutrients just because of avoiding them and i want to keep myself in in this very flexible state and adaptable state so i can just use whatever kind of fuel source that i come across yeah. and not become like resistant to anything cool if i was to put myself in a category it would probably be that as well 
Mm. Yeah, cyclical yeah. keto intermittent fast. Yeah, um, because it, you, your your body is like your body's energy requirements change all the time on a daily basis. So, like for example, if I'm not working out, then I don't need that many carbs either, and I would actually be better off by staying low carb. Versus if I do have like some sort of a you know crazy massive workout, then uh, I would the carbs that I would use or that the carbs that I would eat wouldn't be would they would be put into better use uh, just because they're consumed at the right time around like the exercise mm, mm. yeah makes total sense same here yeah. um i trained not so long ago yep post workout carbohydrates absolutely if i'm not training then just probably fish or meat and vegetables just mm -hmm. you know putting it in a simple format um i wanted to ask um mtor like when is a good time for it to be stimulated and why is it not so good for it to be stimulated too often? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It kind of goes back some of the, some of, some of the, uh, that I talked about, uh, the protein. So mTOR is one of those, uh, growth switches that, uh, makes your body grow, uh, whenever it is activated and, uh, mTOR is responsible for muscle hypertrophy, muscle growth, uh, but it's also responsible for things like just cell replication, cell survival, and uh, stem cell proliferation. And uh, but at the same time, it just makes everything grow, like including fat cells and uh, the cancer cells or mal malignant cells potential as well. So if you have some sort of a, like a cancer, then having mTOR turned on all the time isn't probably like a good idea. Uh, but for most people who don't have cancer then for them mTOR isn't that big of an issue uh, because like we said mTOR still has like quite a lot of benefits like muscle growth and strength and uh that thing so um mm. you you probably you know in in animal studies and uh like fruit flies and those things if they have like mTOR constantly turned on all the time then it does accelerate their aging because uh, it's just you know making the body grow and keeping them in this fair state uh but uh, i don't think that it's that's going to be very applicable to human studies because we're kind of somewhat different and we have different metabolisms. And, uh, and as well, like, I think if you're using mTOR for like building muscle and using it for its right purpose, uh, then uh, it's probably like actually a beneficial thing for longevity because you're kind of enabling yourself to build more muscle mass, which is also very beneficial uh, for longevity. Uh, but with that being said, having it turned on all the time may not be like just uh, a good idea either. So you would probably want to counterbalance it with uh, the opposite of mTOR, which is uh, autophagy. And uh, when mTOR is turned on, then autophagy cannot happen. And uh, as a result, your body will also not be able to kind of eliminate the waste material that accumulates there and essentially just remove these uh, dis dysfunctional cell parts. Mm -hmm. So mTOR and autophagy work almost like in a seesaw. And uh, if you do eat, especially protein or, or carbs, then you raise mTOR and you suppress autophagy. But autophagy will rise when you start to fast and uh, even maintain some aspects of it if you're eating like low carb. So, uh, you know, that's why having some periods during the daytime where you kind of extend the length of the autophagy state can be somewhat beneficial and it depends on like the context if you're exercising hard then um, 
you 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 would uh, need more of the mTOR stimulation uh, versus someone who is more sedentary or someone who has diabetes, then for them they would benefit more from staying in the autophagy state for longer. And for that means like just eating less often, uh, skipping a few meals every once in a while, and uh, yeah, not like not spiking your insulin and not spiking mTOR like with these frequent frequent snacks and uh, frequent uh, meals. So like in the, body, in the bodybuilding community, like a few years ago, it was this main doctrine that you need to eat six small meals a day to, mm. spike, to spike mTOR and uh, build muscle. So it is true that eating more frequently will build more muscle. Uh, but uh, at the same time, like, is that the particular goal of the person uh, depends on the individual. So a lot of people don't like they, they don't want to, you know, go on some sort of a bodybuilding stage and they, they may actually want to just promote the longevity. So for them, kind of at least like being aware of how often they stimulate mTOR and managing it with uh, some autophagy is uh, probably a smarter idea and uh, more applicable to their goals. Let's say there's people who want to compete on the stage, bodybuilding stage. Mm. They do want to stimulate mTOR, but they, yeah, they do want to live a bit longer. Um, how how do they how they how do they work through that? Right. Well, you can still build muscle with, for example, eating two times a day, or eating three times a day, or even eating once a day. The kind of determining it's it the process may be just somewhat slower, and it's definitely like a bit of suboptimal. So, for example, whether or not you build muscle or lose muscle depends on the daily balance between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. So while you're fasting, then you are more catabolic, so to say. You're breaking down some of the muscle tissue versus if you're fit, then you're promoting muscle protein synthesis. And uh, if you, let's say, if you compensate for the daily fasting period with consuming adequate amounts of protein and you know doing some resistance training, then you can eventually still build muscle. The process is just going to be slower. And they have done some studies, a lot of studies actually, where they see that, where they compare, for example, eating two meals a day or eating, eating even eating once a day, and it's not going to make the person lose muscle as long as they're eating like a high-protein diet and they're getting enough calories. So uh, a lot of the times people may lose muscle because, because they're uh, you know, not consuming enough protein and uh, yeah, your body can still absorb all the protein uh, in, in, a, in a particular meal. It's just going to slow down some of the absorption rates. And uh, there's going to be just the, the, the rate limiting factor for uh, muscle protein synthesis. So you, you, you can only stimulate muscle protein synthesis up to a certain threshold mm. per meal. And uh, that threshold is said to be around like 30 to 40 grams of protein. And uh, if you eat more protein, then it's not necessarily going to make you more build muscle. And uh, the only way you overcome this threshold is to spread out your protein intake uh, throughout the day. So you have, you know, three, five meals. But right. if you still spike muscle protein synthesis like once, twice or three times, then you still get like the pro-anabolic effect. Uh, but it's just... Uh, shortened and uh, constricted a little bit. And uh, therefore, it, the end result may be somewhat slower, but it's still possible. Right, right. So if I understand it correctly, if somebody tried to take like all those meals from let's say six or seven meals in a day and they tried to comprise it around a short period of time, 
they're not going to get the same amount of uh, muscle protein synthesis as as that. Do I understand that? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, if you spike muscle protein synthesis with with frequent meals, then you potentially may uh, build more muscle. I think, but at the same time, you can you can also make the argument that as your body gets more used to some fasting then it's also going to adapt to it better and you're going to lose less muscle. So mm. there are studies, for example, well, fasting promotes growth hormone, which is, which is not like a pro-muscle building hormone, but it does have like an anti-catabolic effect and it prevents protein degradation. So uh, in a way, if you, mm. if you uh, burn less muscle during fasting than someone who is not doing fasting, then uh, the... It can, it can potentially counterbalance it. Yeah. And the same, same applies to autophagy as well. Autophagy can also protect against uh, some uh, muscle loss because it works like this hormetic stressor that uh, the body gets used to more catabolism and therefore starts to uh, efficiently use uh, other fuel sources in a better way as opposed to relying on uh, protein and uh, glucose. So you're not going to burn nearly as much muscle as you would if you were to do no uh, fasting. So yeah, it kind of balances itself out. I think, for example, the minimum or the kind of, you can, you can, you don't necessarily have to eat like five meals, but even like a physique athlete and a physique competitor, they can still eat maybe like two meals. And that's already like a pretty good, uh, you, you're already getting sufficient amounts of autophagy and uh, you're already also promoting sufficient amounts of uh, protein synthesis. So uh, yeah, like too much autophagy isn't necessarily good either. And uh, you what's always... an example of too much autophagy? Well, yeah, generally, like muscle loss in general can be a sign mm. that you're becoming more frail. You're not making any progress, and uh, you're yeah, you're losing muscle tissue, and even like losing your hair, losing skin elasticity. Those things they're just signs that your body's being too catabolic and uh, breaking down constantly so you need you do need to nourish your, yourself and getting uh, the pro new, pro growth uh, nutrients yeah. and a pro growth signal that you would get from uh, eating so yeah like a lot of the times people may just uh, go uh, towards the extremes again they they're going all in with autophagy or they're going all in with uh, the the mtor signaling so the kind of answer is always somewhere in the middle mm. another sign of of uh, too much autophagy can be like uh, some neuropathy, for example, where your like your you know fingers they start to lose their blood flow and they become numb and those things. Mm. So yeah, yeah, there, there's pl plenty of like some few negative sides to autophagy and it's uh, not, not always good. We're just gonna take a short break and return right back. Do you feel older than what you are, or do you feel younger? than what your birth certificate actually says you are. Well, typically, how you've lived your life will determine how long you will live. A birth date is really just superficial information because it doesn't tell you how well your body is doing. Methylation tests and epigenetics testing can calculate your cellular age. This will be questioning whether you're healthy living or not so healthy living is affecting your lifespan. To understand your biological age, why not check out DNAge? They can do a biological age test, which is based on the Dr. Horvath epigenetics age clock. 
Just go to mydnh.com and use coupon code SNIPES15 for a cool 15% off. Wouldn't it be cool if you could break down fat and provide yourself energy without it having to be a fat-burning stimulant? Well, Capex by Bioptimizers does exactly that. It breaks down fats into fatty acids, L-carnitine transports the fatty acids into the mitochondria, and InnerSlim burns the fatty acids in the mitochondria. Assisting with growing a bigger mitochondria, you have CoQ10, 7-keto-DHEA, not forgetting Astrozyme. Taking Capex in the morning will provide a clean energy throughout the day. If you take it during a mealtime, then you will get official bowel movements, but more specifically, when you're on a ketogenic diet and intermittent fast. Although bioptimizers do not make any fat burning claims, you can find that your ability to burn fat will be increased between 10 to 15%, especially considering it has fat digesting enzymes too. Just visit bioptimizers.com and use coupon code SNIPES10 for 10% off. We are now going to return right back to the podcast. Thank you. Well, when I started to do the fast, it was a bit difficult. It was a bit difficult at the beginning because, you know, like I'd been reading magazines where they said, yeah, you need to have all of these supplements and you need to eat like from the moment you wake up until just before bed. I was just constantly eating at work, I'm snacking as well. Um, and I think it is a, a, a typical concept with a lot of people that they follow. And um, so I was like, all right, let, let's try this intermittent fast. And I think on the first few days I did fail quite miserably. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, as, as time has gone on, I've now incorporated intermittent fast on, on most days. I'll say at least five days out of the week. On the weekend, it varies. Sometimes, sometimes I'll do it throughout the weekend as well. I find it quite easy, but um, it's a bit different when you're with family. You, you, know, you might just be like, oh, I'll be flexible today. But um, it's so interesting because considering I used to eat from early in the morning, I'm talking like maybe five o'clock, yeah. all the way up until maybe nine or 10 o'clock in the evening, uh, now I'll eat in a like window of like maybe four hours, I don't really see that much of a difference in muscle loss. Like if any, I, I feel like energy levels is so much better. It takes a little bit of getting used to, but I, sometimes I look in the mirror and I'm like, how's this possible? Like even I don't understand. You've explained part of it, but I'm looking at it, I'm like, this, this is so weird. But it works. Yeah. And there's people like when I tell people, yeah, sometimes I'll have like one meal or two meals. And they're like, but how? Like, look at all that muscle you have. I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm just like, I read it's good. I tried it. It works. You just got to try it yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah, definitely that part about maybe the growth hormone part of it and, um, you know, that, that kind of um, anti-catabolic effect from yeah. the autophagy. And for, for example, like the ketone bodies, uh, the ke ketones that you produce while fasting, 
they also have anti-catabolic effects. So uh, yeah, your body doesn't really want to get get rid of the muscle. You know, as long as the signal is there that it needs it, is not going to try to get rid of it. So uh, the, therefore, the most important variable is the training stimulus. So you have to kind of um, you know exert the muscles and uh, give your body a reason to have it. Because if you were too fast without doing any training then you would lose muscle because the body doesn't need it and uh, therefore it's not going to keep it around. So uh, that's why the training, even, even at a, like a calorie deficit, and a lot of studies show that you know, uh, the diet, while dieting and being in a calorie deficit, then the training stimulus is the most important factor that uh, prevents the muscle loss as well as like a high protein intake. So uh, even, even if you are eating you know, fewer meals, uh, I think personally, and from my own experience and uh, from the science, I would say that you would still have to eat like a high amount of protein mm-hmm. and uh, because your body would um, you know, uh, use that protein to uh, build tissue as well as increase or fill up the amino acid pool that it's going to draw upon while it is fasting. Mm-hmm. So your body can store like a small amounts of amino acids for the next coming maybe like 24 hours or such, but there is no like long-term uh, storage or amino acids. So that's why kind of keeping the protein intake somewhat constant is uh, very beneficial and important. And your body will speak to you as well. I've, I know that I've tried um, in the intermittent fast, um, well, not even tried, but I remember at one point where I didn't really have that much protein. I might have had a lot more vegetables, maybe a bit more fats. Um, and after I'd finished eating, uh, yeah, and some carbs as well. After I finished eating, I still felt hungry. And I ate more, but I still felt hungry. And I was like, wow, man, I don't know how this is going to work. But the moment I switched the ratio and increased the protein, wow, I felt so much more satiated. It's quite interesting. It's like, it's, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, the humans uh, prioritize certain nutrients and uh, we do develop these uh, tastes and cravings for like essential nutrients as well as protein. So the, it's called the protein leverage hypothesis. So humans are essentially trying to eat as long as they get enough protein and uh, protein is like very satiating, like I said, and uh, yeah, like we do need a certain amount of protein to maintain uh, the current muscle tissue as well as build it. So, uh, you know, that's why processed foods tend to be very hyper palatable and uh, people <laughs> can't get enough of them. They can eat, uh, you know, until they gorge themselves because they're craving for the protein and processed yeah. food is generally low in protein. So they're eating, they can eat like 5,000 calories until they hit this threshold for the protein intake versus there's, there's things called the protein sparing modified fast where, where you are eating only protein and like low carb and low fat, just like 100% pure protein protein. And those diets are very satiating and you kind of get sick of eating because you're getting massive amounts of protein and you're hitting the threshold with very low calories and you can actually lose weight. So yeah, like the mm. protein is like a very important factor for satiety and yeah, like general, uh, the feeling of uh, fullness and uh, that you, that you reach. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier about a, a amino pool that you have like how much uh, can you have in your amino pool before it starts to overspill right uh, not sh- I, i'm not sure how big it is but i would imagine it's probably like a f- maybe it's a, you know your liver glycogen is the kind of the first 
um, kind of central hub for energy homeostasis. So mm -hmm. liver glycogen is used for regulating your blood sugar and uh, the liver can contain about 100 to 150 grams of glycogen. And usually that gets depleted within the course of like 20 to 24 hours of uh, fasting or eating low carb. So you can deplete that quite rapidly. And I would imagine that the amino acid pool can be maybe around the same size. So uh, mm. I think uh, that would be probably quite uh, similar. Okay, okay. That's good to know. I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> um, um, you know, with uh, mitochondria, like, um, I think you'd mentioned about if there's issues with the mitochondria, then that would affect your longevity. Um, what, what are some of the things that can really help to strengthen and boost your mitochondria to have it firing mm. on all cylinders, you know, just waking yeah. up, cartwheeling out of bed, smiling. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. What, what, what are the main things for boosting your mitochondria? Would you say? Yeah. Well, there's two, two, uh, let's say factors or two components to the, having a functional mitochondria. One is the number of mitochondria, which is like how many of them there are. And then there's the mitochondrial density, which is how much energy is one mitochondria able to produce. And uh, the sweet spot is a balance between the two, because if you have too many mitochondria, then uh, it can become like a waste. You can start to waste energy because you have so much extra resources that you have to spend on maintaining that large amount of mitochondria uh, and that you know the the single isn't producing enough energy versus if you have only very dense mitochondria then the total amount of the mitochondria is uh, smaller and but the individual mitochondria are producing more energy as well but that can also be problematic because it makes your body too efficient like your metabolism is uh, running so efficiently that you start to burn less calories and uh, you, you don't need to kind of get extra calories from food. So it's almost like a, this starvation state or the hibernation state where the body is just in this metabolic winter and almost like shut down compared to something that is super inefficient and uh, wasting a lot of energy, which is like a sugar burner or some, something like that, like yeah. this ectomorph kind of person that is just wasting energy and they're not really, they're not able to build muscle and, uh, and they're not able to maintain their stable body weight. So. How would a person have all of this mitochondria and like extra and yeah, things, things, things that promote this phenomenon of mitochondrial biogenesis or the creation of new mitochondria is uh, things, ac activities like um, endurance exercise has been shown to do that. Then, uh, you know, fasting can also do it and certain nutrients like uh, CoQ10 and, uh, for example, like polyphenols, those things, they, pr they, they promote the mitochondrial biogenesis. And uh, as well as things like, on the upper, opposite hand, things that promote the mitochondrial density are things like, you know, taking a cold shower, cold bath, and uh, resistance training, and uh, fasting does it as well, and then maybe some saunas and those things. So generally, mm. you know, you can find some sort of a balance uh, between them and they're kind of the optimal is like this sort of a you know yeah like a peak peak between mitochondrial biogenesis and mitochondrial density because if your mitochondria are only too dense 
then you may just slow down your metabolism. Uh, but if your mitochondria is too, you know, populated or inefficient, then that can also well, like well, maybe maybe for some people it's beneficial if they want to lose a bunch of weight. But uh, that can also sacrifice some of the muscle tissue and uh, just make the person too frail. So yeah, you have to kind of find a balance between and I do these two aspects. You mentioned uh, sauna and um, I think cold showers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you say it's good to do one and immediately the other or maybe separate the days on that? Uh, well, like if I, if I usually do take like a sauna, then I'll combine it with some cold exposure as well, whether that be like a shower or an ice bath or like a lake or something. So I just feels better. And uh, it, it, I think it, it is more effective as well because you're getting like this additional lymph uh, drainage. So in the hot, you're sweating out the sweat and the toxins and those things. Mm. Uh, and that's, that does promote uh, blood flow and cardiovascular health. But if you go to the cold, then that also like creates this opposite effect. So it gets, gets the lymph flowing as well. So the lymph system itself doesn't have like an automatic cir cir circulation system like your blood does. Your blood is being pumped all the time through the heart. Uh, but the lymph doesn't have like this central pump and therefore things that do stimulate that and keep it moving are like exercise, jumping around and rebounding and staying active. But, you know, the alternating between the hot and cold also does that. So I think that's beneficial. And a lot of the like the subjective, uh, subjective, like mental state is also pretty supreme after you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've been out in the cold. I haven't done... I'll be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm quite scared of cold water. <laughs> I try, I try the cold shower, and it frightens me every time. I don't know. I think more my cortisol levels goes up. I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> but yeah, it is like difficult, and uh, it can be shocking. So, uh, what I, I think, like, you can start off with doing the contrast shower, which is like uh, maybe thirty seconds. Uh, warm 30 seconds cold and kind of go back and forth a few times because uh again like i i would say that doing it together is better because of this uh, lymph aspect uh versus just doing the cold like i used to do the cold shower all the time and uh, no excuses and uh, no no exceptions like for for a few years uh back in the day uh, but i just eventually realized that it's the contrast shower and contrast exposure can be actually better and healthier. So I, I tend to do it now. Okay. Um, would you say that a cold shower is not as efficient or as good as a, a plunge, like submerging in cold water or are they both pretty similar? Yeah. The, well, the, the plunge or uh, submersion is generally colder and it's probably more effective. You can get like a, you can get the minimal effective dose faster, mm -hmm. uh, but it can also be, you know, in a way the cold plunge or the bath is uh, eventually it becomes very like tranquil, like <laughs> your initial response. Yeah. Is to really, uh, you know, shake yourself up or uh, become very tight and uh, like you, you're trying to shiver and resist the cold but after a while maybe like within the few uh, 10 seconds or 30 seconds you 
eventually just kind of okay i'm cool now <laughs> or like I, i'm relaxed I, i'm in control and then you can actually start to enjoy it uh, quite yeah. a lot so uh, in a way it's very meditative and once you are inside there the key is to just start to c- take control of your breath because if you you know tense up and freeze and you start breathing like <laughs> like, I, like not not uncontrollably then that's going to make the stress response uh, much worse so your initial your initial goal has to be just to kind of take control of the breath and uh, therefore take control of the stress response as well. So uh, once you do that, then it becomes pretty enjoyable and uh, it's uh, very meditative and you kind of start to feel how the blood is pumping <laughs> through yeah. throughout the entire body. And uh, I and, do uh, question how long it takes before a person can get used to that <laughs> because I've been trying this cold, just the cold shower alone for a little while now and it just always frightens me Mm. i was um i don't know maybe a few months no it's probably a bit longer than that could have been about four five months ago i was in a um in a sauna where there was a little plunge pool i was with some friends and um yeah tim Mm. you know tim (laughs) so i was with tim and i was with uh who else i was with uh ryan as well so Mm. yeah tim gray ryan carter and uh someone else everybody got in so easily and they just they were like relaxing i got in there and you know i was i was given the instructions that you need to control the breathing and i was trying i really really was i was like come on i was struggling it was such a struggle and i was like is 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 there a gene <laughs> which is in control of that where it's like you know what your gene says no you know there's a book called the dirty gene and i haven't gone into that but um i'm just wondering whether there is something there or i just need to practice a lot more than maybe an average person or what you know? maybe maybe like a little bit but uh i think that's one of those epigenetic things that you can start to condition yourself to endure yeah. and uh like uh, one 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 way of going about it, or the one idea that I like to use is that in order to resist, in, in instead of resisting the cold and tensing up, you can have to kind of yield to the cold. So you you have to kind of let your body really loose and just let it happen happen happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you do that, then you can, you know, even focusing on the exhale only just gives you something to kind of grab onto and put your focus on as opposed to focusing on the cold, you know, hitting your, your body and yeah. making it tense. I noticed it. I think the first place I feel it is probably my back. Have you used the uh, cryo chamber? Do you know what? Cryo at one stage, I was using that and I was going maybe once every week mm-hmm. and absolutely fine. That was easy. You know, I'll go in there and I even asked to stay in a bit longer. So mm-hmm. I think they give you three minutes. I was like, please, let me stay in longer. This is easy. I got in there. It was fine. I even tried to challenge myself. I put a bit of water on myself before I went in. Oh, nice. I was good. Absolutely fine. But the the plunge or like the the shower cold shower that's a struggle like the cold air absolutely fine in fact uh when i was younger i used to work in a freezer oh really yeah and it was like minus 26 degrees 
Um, you know, I was wearing a, a, the appropriate sort of like working gear, but sometimes when I was working in there, it was kind of like a manual labor job. So uh, when I worked in there, I was getting hot and I'd be wearing like a, maybe like a long sleeve or on the occasion I'd wear a t-shirt and people were like, oh my God, that's crazy. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. But it was fine for me because my body is always hot, maybe because of the muscle that I have. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the water though, again, crazy. <laughs> I guess it's going to take a lot more, um, a lot more practice, more cold showers. And maybe I'll find a lake and one day just jump in there. Ah! See how it goes. <laughs> yeah. You know, in a way, in a way it is like that. But uh, yeah, like just gradual exposure with, uh, you know, even just putting your face into cold water and trying to hold your breath in there, maybe it just, you can give you like some more confidence in uh, kind of not, 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 not thinking that it's uh, harmful or not thinking that's going to make you stressed out or freak out. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the psychological aspect <laughs> of that. Um, stem cells. Um, I know that's another part of uh, potential issues with aging. So like stem cell exhaustion. Uh, could you tell me a bit more about how that can happen? Yeah, well, the, there are also like additionally similar things uh, that can exhaust these stem cells. And, uh, you know, uh, just stress, oxidative stress and uh, inflammation uh, but yeah, generally also, you know, eating a poor diet and all these epigenetic factors uh, can affect uh, this. And uh, generally, like most people, you know, you do have like these stem cells stored in your uh, adipose tissue and uh, bone marrow, but uh, they will also maybe potentially deteriorate as you get older. So uh, therefore, the only kind of usable factor or the only applicable uh, way of uh, preventing that would be to kind of bank your stem cells when you're young and then potentially using them later when you're older uh, because that you know that that can avoid the potential that if you can also inject like someone else's stem cells but that can have like some some conflict of interest or some you know maybe some autoimmune response or something so using how, your own stem how cells. does it work how does it work i've heard of people having stem cell treatments and I find it fascinating. One thing I do know is that it, it can be quite expensive. So it's not something which is typical amongst most people. Like stem cell treatment, how does it work and how, why do people benefit from it? Yeah, I, I, do, I myself haven't uh, done it or I haven't uh, researched it that much. Mm. But uh, generally people would uh, go to like uh, some sort of a clinic, anti-aging clinic, stem cell clinic, and uh, they would kind of uh, draw out the stem cells from your adipose tissue or your bone marrow, and they would kind of, you know, spin it around in this. I'm not sure what the machine is called, but and then will they will inject it back into yourself. So uh, that, that way, the stem cells themselves are these universal uh, cells that can swap out any other cell in your body. So if you have like some poorly functioning you know for example like the localized stem cell shots for like maybe you have like a shoulder injury maybe you have like a knee injury then injecting the stem cells into that location would uh, make the stem cells kind of go into that tissue and uh, repair the damage you know in like a universal way that they would find out what is wrong and then start fixing it whether that be like skin tissue or skin cells nerve cells 
muscle cells or uh, you know that sort of thing mm. is there is there a preferred uh, method of uh, stem cell treatment, whether bone marrow or adipose tissue? It, do they both work pretty much the same, or is is there a stronger one to to do? I um, I actually don't know. Like uh, right. I haven't I haven't researched it that much, but uh, mm. you know, I've heard that uh, both can work, and uh, both both uh, definitely can be applicable. Right, right. Got you. Um. Yeah, I definitely want to understand a bit more about that. Um, I've I've heard of people doing stem cell treatment in their in their penis and stuff like that. <laughs> um, okay, interesting. Um, what about talk to me about um, altered uh, intracellular communication? So, if there is an I- issue there, that as well can create aging. I'll assume. Or accelerated aging. Yeah, well, altered intracellular communication is just um, improper communication between the different uh, systems in your body, whether that be the endocrine system uh, or neuronal system or just central nervous system. So, yeah, like um, essentially, that these kind of dysfunctions uh, or misalignments will cause more uh, inflammation and more oxidative stress because the body has to kind of you know, uh, keep up with itself or it's not working in synchrony. And these different systems tend to always work uh, interdependently. So you can't really look at, for example, you know, the perfect, perfect example would be maybe like the connection between the gut and the brain. So uh, your gut influences the brain a lot and uh, all the microbes and the microbiome has a profound effect on the functioning of a brain and cognition. So for example, most of the neurotransmitters get produced in the gut and uh, maybe like even like you know uh, serotonin which is the neurotransmitter of you know relaxation uh, as well as as well as some dopamine which is the reward neurotransmitter they get produced uh, a lot in the gut and what you eat then also has like a direct effect on your brain's health and uh, like systemic inflammation is also uh, you know you know primarily modulated by the microbiome so if the microbiome is uh it's suffering from some sort of a dysbiosis imbalances then it has like a ripple effect on basically every other system in the body as well mm. wow wow i was uh, wow i was uh, recently looking at um i, I always kind of uh, thought of uh, serotonin as something that will make you happy i didn't feel of it think of it in in any other way to be honest uh did you say a calm feeling like relaxed or something yeah it's like a satisfactory would be maybe like more right uh, essentially just yeah makes the body feel safe and uh relaxed i I would say they were kind of similar but yeah it's it's not like it can be like making making you you know for example you do experience serotonin when you're like accomplish something as well as uh, when you're like experiencing some connection, which is not exactly like the love, love serotonin, or not like not like the love hormone or anything, but yeah, like just these kind of feelings tend to overlap in some aspects. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I've, I also read that uh, BCAAs can affect uh, absorption of tryptophan which is the precursor to serotonin isn't it 
Yeah, yeah. Like so uh, some amino acids, yeah, can compete uh, with each other. And uh, yeah, like if you take PCAs, then they, they can also, like some people may report like mild depression <laughs> from taking it because they're not getting like the tryptophan and uh, they're not getting the serotonin. So, yeah. Certainly. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you think about it. There's a lot of people that are going to the gym hoping that they can take these BCAAs that can help them to recover, build new lean tissue. And I mean, that in itself is like, <laughs> I mean, be like BCAAs is already is BS as far as I'm concerned. Um, but not only is it BS, but it can also, uh, create depression in the process so you're not really you're not saving any lean tissue and end up with depression <laughs> <laughs> well it, it may work maybe like if you're getting enough protein then it's not it's not important but it can be useful if you're eating like a low protein diet so yeah like most most uh, most uh, let's say fitness people or someone who is at the gym then they're already you know, hyper-focused on eating enough protein, so they're not probably under-eating it. So for them, it's not that big of a, it's not that uh, beneficial. Yeah, yeah. What, what can you tell me about uh, protein folding? I've heard so much about it, and I know that if there's any kind of dysfunctional protein folding, then it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not something you think about on a regular basis or think about at all. Like you'd think about protein, protein, but you wouldn't think about protein folding. What can you tell me about that? Like in, in layman terms, like why it's important for us to have the folding process uh, for longevity? Mm. Yeah, well, you know, your body is on a daily basis is constantly, you know, breaking down and building up and, uh, you know, uh, synthesizing DNA as well as protein. So uh, it's important to kind of make sure that the it's get put into the in, into order, so to say. It's put uh, together in the right way, and uh, just if your if your prote proteolysis, which is uh you know the is, is if it's dysfunctional, then uh, then that's you know in a way you're putting your body back together also in a dysfunctional way, and uh, misfolded proteins themselves happen as a result of like cellular damage, and uh, and that sort of thing. So even, you know, for example, exercise can create these uh, things. And uh, e even for and during like heat, when you're uh, exposed to the heat, then you repair some of the damage uh, of the missile proteins with heat shock proteins. So yeah, so like essentially, you know, we're putting back the protein uh, together. Okay. Uh, is, is there any other way of uh, inducing protein folding? Um, well, I would, I would imagine that eating protein itself will also be doing that. Like mTOR is probably responsible for that. Just, okay, right. Cool. I think, um, I think that's everything, man. <laughs> if there's anything else you reckon would be um, interesting for people to know for uh, longevity or just, well, actually autophagy. Mm. Autophagy itself, we haven't actually... What would you, how would you explain to someone what autophagy is? Yeah, well, autophagy is uh, essentially cellular 
recycling or cellular turnover where you're uh, recycling uh, dysfunctional cell parts, different uh, pathogens and garbage and junk and uh, using it for energy production and kind of sustaining the energy homeostasis. So yeah, anything that there's always some autophagy happening uh, in some like some basal form, uh, but you can accelerate this with things like that create more energy depletion, like exercise and fasting and saunas. They all promote autophagy because the body is in a more high energy expenditure state. Like your your energy demand is higher, and therefore the body kind of has to use its own backup and uh, kind of turn inward. And this is it very is is beneficial in for longevity in many ways. Uh, mainly by just removing this, you know, this different uh, misfolded proteins and this different uh, oxidative, oxidative stress and inflammatory particles and just keeping uh, the house clean, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, intermittent fast is very good for that. Um, what about water fasts or extended fasts where people are fasting for like 48 hours and stuff like that? Would you say it's all relevant or not as relevant for autophagy? It would um, increase the amount of autophagy you get from like the longer you fast, then it's kind of probably increase autophagy. Uh, but whether or not it's worth it depends on the particular goals so, and the particular individual. So, you know, uh, the 48 hour fast or three day fast can be good for like weight loss, uh, but you just have to be also aware of uh, just making sure that your diet is on point after coming out of the fast mm-hmm. and, and such, and making sure that you exercise and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, for older people, I wouldn't recommend doing like a very long fast because for them, it's very hard to uh, maintain muscle and it's just not worth it for them. But, you know, younger people, they can safely do you know, like a, this sort of an extended fast a few times a year as a way of just uh, keeping, uh, you know, housekeeping again and doing it as a way of also just inducing a larger calorie deficit so yeah like both ways work but uh yeah the you know whether or not it's going to actually have like a substantial effect on your longevity would be also dependent of what you're doing when you're not fasting so you can't really make up for a bad diet and uh, not exercising with fasting so they kind of complement each other and you you need you need uh, you need both yeah yeah um i had another question but i freaking forgot Mm. damn 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 (laughs) we'll leave it for the next time (laughs) Mm, it it was it was it was part of that um yeah i guess yeah i'm gonna have to leave that so annoying but look, it's been absolutely amazing. I really yeah. do appreciate it. You've really given some golden nuggets here. Um, where can everybody find you? I know you're on Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? It's uh, Seamland, S-I-M-Land. Okay. And, and uh, my, web- my website is also seamland.com. And there I have like articles. And on YouTube, it's also Seamland. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I've seen some of your videos on YouTube. They're great. They're great. I need, I need to learn from you. <laughs> Fantastic. Are you on Twitter as well? Uh, I do have an account, but I don't use it like actively. So Okay. We just want to know the ones which you're active, active on. So 
Okay, yeah. sweet. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for having um, me. Yeah, it was a great talking. Has been a great pleasure indeed. All right. Thanks again. You take care. Thank you for tuning in today's episode. Any guests which I have on the show really provide some golden nuggets and useful life-changing tips. So always feel free to check out their social media platforms or website links, which will be written in the show notes. These shows are financed by my sponsors, so your contributions are always greatly appreciated. Any clickable links with discount codes will not only provide you with the best services, but will help out the podcast too. So thank you. If you do like the Roger Snipe Show podcasts, then why not give it a review? A five star would be awesome. But some great feedback on what you liked about the show or what you would have liked to hear would be helpful too. Until next time.